Today, we'll unpack how leaders and leadership links to safety climates, but also behavior and safety performances in organization. We'll explore a cross-industry benchmark for safety leadership. We'll also look at a scientifically validated model for safety leadership, which are those eight competencies. And we'll probably provide you with some data and insights uh, that help you build the case for uh, leadership investment when it comes to your safety. Now, um, just a little bit about us, Centis. Um, our mission is to change the life of individuals and organizations for the better every day. The way we do that is by the application of neuroscience and psychology to your organizational and work context uh, with the goal to help you transform your safety culture or accelerate the change or the journey you are on. Um, I'm a principal consultant and Sarah has already told you a little bit about me, so I'm not gonna dwell on who I am. Um, what I'll share with you though is the agenda for today. So first, we'll look at uh, the safety leadership link, meaning what's the relationship between safety leadership and organizational uh, performances. We'll look at a model for effective safety leadership in the second part of this webinar, so those eight competencies, but we'll also explore their practical application to the world of work. Essentially, that's it's a bit of a situational leadership piece where we explore how we bring them to life and uh, go through a few extra steps at the end of that. So let's get started and look at the safety leadership link. We're trying to understand here the impact of leadership on safety culture. And I think a good place to start, it's probably by defining how we at Centis understand safety culture. And the way we understand safety culture is best described using this model. Now, we base our understanding of what a holistic approach to safety culture is based on the work of Professor Scott E. Gellert. And what this model describes is essentially uh, a complex yet simple idea. There's four macro theme or components that composed safety culture. First, the practices, which is essentially the way you codify um, the way you do safety, right? So from your practices to your SOPs to the recurrence and occurrence of training, uh, your SMS, everything that is a practice or procedure and codify safety. You've got your environment, that is your physical environment. So from the tools you're using to do the job safely to the PPE you wear or the type of gear that you wear uh, extended to um, the plan design in your environment. We also have a person component. Now the person component is the aggregation of attitude, behaviors and skills of individual in the organization and how they apply that to the environment or the practices they interact with. And those three components, I, interdependent, they're not mutually exclusive. And I want you to think of themselves just like a three-legged stool, right? Uh, if we remove one of the leg, what happens? Well, the stool collapses, they need to coexist. Now, there's one component I haven't mentioned yet. It's probably the one of interest to us today. It's leadership. Now you can see that leadership sits around the trios or component. There's a very good reason for that. Leadership can influence all component of safety culture which is why it sits around. So when we talk about leadership, we talk about management commitment to safety, how production pressure is perceived in the organization or the balance between production and safety, safety vision and mission, things that are the hallmark of leaders. And that's what we will explore today and the impact of that on, on safety culture. So what's the impact? Well, we ran a study to try and understand that. 
And we ran that study through seven industries with a sample group of roughly 11,000 people and a little bit more than that. If you want to take a deep dive into the study, please go on our website and you'll have all the information you need. What we'll do today is just unpack the key findings. So what did we see? Well, it might not come as a surprise, but safety climate is indicative of safety leadership ability. What it means is that when people reported strong positive perception of safety leadership capability in the organization, it was correlated strong positive perception of the safety climate or in or positive perception in different climate uh, dimensions. Now, what we also found was that an increased production pressure or an increased poor perception of safety versus production in a balance is indicative of poor safety leadership. Meaning if people reported strongly that they perceived leadership as pretty bad in the context of safety, they usually felt or reported high production pressure or felt production pressure. What we also found was that with improved safety leadership, we, see, we had seen improved safety performances by the organization, meaning your lag and lead metrics will be improved if people reported strong safety leadership. Likewise, in those organizations, leaders reported that their team safety behaviors had increased. And the last, perhaps, perhaps more surprising finding, but very interesting nonetheless, is that there's a strong opportunity to address well-being climate through safety leadership. In fact, it's the most strongly correlated, meaning well-being climate is heavily impacted by safety leadership. Well, it makes sense if you think about it. Um, there's no amount of fruit bowls that are going to fix a bad relationship with a leader, right? All those well-being initiatives are great, but if I don't get along with my boss or if I feel like I can't trust my leader when it comes to looking after my safety, why should I trust him to look after my well-being? Right, and that's that correlation here. When we look at the strengths of relationship between safety leadership and safety climate indicators, what we saw was that the well-being climate was strongly correlated. And in fact, all other climate indicators were strongly correlated to safety leadership, at least moderately or quite strongly. So what's the leadership link? Well, if we try to summarize that idea quite simply, I think this is best summarized using this model. So what you have here is a safety culture maturity model going from counterproductivity, which is the lower end of that scale, all the way through citizenship, which is the gold standard for safety culture maturity. The main difference between positive and negative safety culture is the type of behaviors that we see in the organization. It is a hindering as opposed to helpful. What we call negative safety cultures are cultures on the lower end of that scale from public compliance to counterproductive, positive safety cultures from private compliance to citizenship. So what happens when we have poor safety leadership? Well, we see an increase in those behaviors that are the hallmark of negative safety culture at a team level, but we also see a decrease of helpful behaviors in that same team. So poor safety leadership, pushes you towards the lower end of that scale and lower your chances to grow your safety culture maturity. On the flip end, strong safety leadership will see an increase in those behaviors that are hallmark of positive safety cultures and a decrease in counterproductive 
type behavior or public compliance type behaviors. Now, so strong safety leadership will impact your safety culture quite dramatically is pretty much the takeaway here. Now, um, inviting you maybe to identify what poor safety leadership could look like or feel like in organization before we look at what good looks like. So there's a list of examples here and you, you get the slide deck. I'm not going to read them one by one, but essentially if you see that there is discrepancies in the way safety violation or safety performances are being recognized or dealt with in the organization, that could be an indicator. Um, very strong indicator if you don't see the transfer of skills from training to on the job. So if we teach our people things in training that are quite important to make sure we maintain a strong safety record and we don't see that translate on the job or in field, that's a good indicator that there's probably a bit of a, an opportunity here for us to work on. Likewise, pre-start programs or pre-shift meetings, sorry, programs, um, toolbox talks, all those medium where we interact with our team. If it feels like a leader talking to a team without too much of a two-way communication, that's probably another good indicator. Um, we also see error and incident being dissimulated because of the low trust level in that organization. So this is just for you to reflect on. If this is happening in my organization, perhaps that could be an indication that there's an opportunity to improve safety leadership. What I'll then introduce to you now is that model for effective safety leadership. Um, before I unpack the eight safety comp leadership competencies with you, probably a, a bit of a background on how we landed on that model, right? Uh, there was a validation process where we look at empiric empirical literature study, uh, and, and studies uh, in the safety leadership space, as well as in the leadership or general leadership space. So what we landed down is a validated model that um, unpacks mostly transformational leadership skills, but also transactional leadership skills, which are quite uncommon in leadership framework in the modern world, but actually very important in the context of safety. And this is that model for effective safety leadership. So there is eight safety leadership competencies, namely vision, inspiring, actively caring, role modeling, supporting, recognizing, challenging, and collaborating. And I'll explain them one by one to give you a better understanding of what they are or what they refer to. So I'll start at the top with safety vision. Now, that's the ability for a leader to share the vision and articulate that well, but also to help people understand how we get there, the roadmap. To give you an example, often in organization, they will have a vision for safety, things such as home safe every day. Um, that's great to be able to relay that information to the work uh, to, to the team, but how are we getting there? What does that mean to go to home safe every day? What are the steps necessary to get there and help people understand how we achieve that vision? Strongly correlated to that competency is actually the next one, inspiring. Now, being inspiring isn't being charismatic. A lot of people make that assumption that to inspire others, we need to be charismatic, not necessarily. So it's important to keep in mind. Inspiring, that, that competency is the idea that I can get people to buy into my vision, right? Or the plan that we have for safety as an organization. Now, the way you can do that, for instance, is by leveraging universal truths, uh, like you know, safety isn't about protecting you from the things that can hurt you, but for the things that you value. 
we get people to see what's in it for them to buy into that safety vision. We're going home safe every day because that's something that we value, going home safe, right? Then comes actively caring. Now, active care is just authentic, genuine care for the well-being, safety of our people, right? And, and that's a pretty transformational competency, right? We need to show that we actively care for others by checking in, by reminding them often that we care and that's why we do safety around here. Rolls on to role modeling. Uh, role modeling is probably twofold. You want to first role model safety compliant behaviors, right? You want to show your people what good looks like. And that's probably 99% of the time what you will do. But that 1% where as leaders, we may not do the right thing. We also have to role model what it's like to take ownership and accountability for perhaps a mistake because people will increasingly look at us for the type of reaction they should adopt in those moments. So role modeling is setting the benchmark for what's expected when it comes to safety in the organization. Supporting, quite interesting. Um, one of the most misunderstood of those eight competencies. So I will tell you first what supporting isn't. Supporting is not helping your people do their job and doing the paperwork for them, right? Supporting is helping people understand what's expected of them. So it is quite a transactional um, competency or, or, or idea, but it's very important. Again, I cannot stress that enough for safety because people need to know what the expectations are for safety in the organization, what safe behaviors we want to see and what that looks like. So supporting is actually setting expectations so people clearly understand what's expected of them and so they can perform accordingly. So supporting, providing people with guidance, essentially. We then roll into recognizing. Now, recognition is a bit of an interesting one and we'll unpack that later, but it's essentially recognizing consistently high performances when it comes to safety, but also what good looks like every day. Um, it's very important that we do that so that people know what's expected. Again, uh, it's a pretty transactional uh, competency recognition. A good example of that is, uh, I'm sure many people have heard uh, in the safety space once in their life, someone being told or being told themselves, uh, why aren't you correct, uh, wearing the correct PPE, right? Very few people would have heard, thank you for wearing the correct PPE today and doing the right thing. Now, while that might feel like telling people just to do their job, it's actually quite important that we recognize those everyday normal behavior and promote them. That's what recognition is about. Rolls into challenging. Um, challenging isn't arguing with people. Uh, challenging is the idea that we can influence people and invite them to think differently. So we encourage them to reflect on their perception of a certain task or, or what they should be doing in the context of safety and really encouraging them to think differently about that same issue. Um, questioning is probably your best line of action there as a leader. So what else have you done in the past that worked well, or how can we do this safer, or what's the safest way to go about performing this task, or you get the deed. Um, the last competency, collaboration, collaborating, um, it's that idea that we provide people with the opportunity to give input into the safety decision-making process, meaning we have a consultative approach to solving uh, problem or challenges when it comes to safety. 
So as a leader, I may have to make the decision, but I'm going to give people the opportunity to give their input into that decision-making process. Now, those are your eight safety leadership competencies, and we'll unpack them a little bit more in the short term, but also how they play out in organization across industry. Just to summarize those ideas of transactional and transformational leadership, two of those competencies are mainly transactional, recognition and supporting. The rest are transformational. Why a combination of both? Well, you couldn't have just transactional competencies because that would probably create some, um, some level of punishment and negative reinforcement. We want to be help, able to empower people and have them grow. And that's true leveraging those transformational leadership competencies. But now that you know a little bit more about the model, I've got a question for you. And it's going to be a first poll. Now, in your organization, what percentage of leaders do you think demonstrate safety leadership or strong safety leadership? Is it less than 20%, 20 to 40%, perhaps more that middle ground, 40 to 60, and, and maybe more than 80%. So tell me, what percentage of leaders do you think demonstrate strong safety leadership are current in your organization? And we'll let the poll play out. Okay, we're nearly there, Thibaut. Just a couple more seconds. Thanks, Sarah. Okay, I'm going to close that one now. You'll see the results. All right, interesting. So most people were in that 20 to 60% uh, bucket, right? Um, we've got 37% and 36% of people that think, yeah, maybe on average, one out of two leader is demonstrating strong safety leadership. A small portion uh, that believe more than 80% and a quarter of people on the call thought that less than 20% of leader were able to demonstrate strong safety leadership. Well, what we found was that only 24% of leader demonstrate strong safety leadership against those eight safety leadership competencies. So only a quarter of leaders are demonstrating strong safety leadership, which is kind of a concerning, but at the same time invigorating news that there's a big opportunity to address that and get result. Now, where does those 24% come from? Well, we ran a study on the back of the safety leadership link, uh, trying to, to understand how those things play out in organization, right? Those eight safety leadership competency and establish the state of safety leadership. Now you can go again, if you're interested in on our website to, to download that white paper and understand better what that study comprised of, but essentially 8,000 participants that rated or gave their upward perception of the leader in the organization. 535 leaders gave us their self-perception. We went across nine industry and it was a study that was ran globally. Now, the purpose was to establish the state of safety leadership across industry against the eight safety competencies. The result, here it is. Now, when we look at the average upwards perception rating of safety leadership, here's what we landed on. So there's a few things to unpack here. I think probably the most um, interesting to me, besides the obvious, is that across industry, we mostly landed in that fair perception zone from five, five, four to five. 
Meaning, on average, we're not doing really great. We're not terrible, but we're not strong uh, or strongly believed to be uh, strong safety leaders. The other thing to impact is that across industry, while there, there may be some discrepancies, most industries perform relatively the same according to that model. And the key opportunity is recognition. So across industry, recognition was something that people felt was not done well by their leaders, sometimes reporting negative perception of recognition in the organization, in the industry, when they're reporting on the organization, which is quite interesting because transactional leadership skills are quite what's considered the basic of leadership, right, in organization. And, and that's the one that people cry out for. So there's probably an opportunity here to reflect on what's our recognition process in the organization? Is it formal or informal? And what can we improve? Knowing that this is a key opportunity for safety leaders across industries. Now, we ran another study with a subsample of leaders to try and understand, well, that's what people are telling us, but where are leaders in the mix? So the subsample is, is much smaller, but it's still very representative of a trend. So this is a comparison of self-rating versus others on leadership ability and competency. Now, what's clearly obvious when we look at this is that leaders self-rated much higher than they were perceived to be by their team. And there is pretty significant discrepancies, for instance, in that actively caring competency. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that leaders think they're so great and they're doing well? I don't think so. See, I think that tells a very different story, that data. I think if you report self-report as very strongly actively caring, there's a good chance that you do. I'm also going to assume that most people come to work every day to do a great job with the intent to help everyone go home safe, especially if they're leaders. See, what that data suggests to me is that there's probably a discrepancy in perception because leaders aren't equipped to use those competencies appropriately in situations. Meaning, well, I probably really care that I'm, I'm not able to demonstrate and influence people enough for them to understand that. And that's the key opportunities to help people leverage those competencies in situation to influence the culture that they want to see. See, strong safety leadership is creating and maintaining a work, a work culture based on trust. And I cannot underpin how important that is, especially in the context of safety. If you don't have a baseline level of trust, it's very likely that people aren't going to tell you what's going not so well on, on the workflow. And they may not give you the data that you so directly need to improve your safety culture and safety performances. Um, I've got a, a comment from Matthias here that says that feedback from his employees that many times the visibility of their leaders isn't what they, they want to and that's what they strive for. It's important that senior management demonstrate continuous visibility and what they say is consistent with what they do. Um, I couldn't agree more, Matthias. I think uh, it's one thing to talk the talk. It's another one to walk the talk. And 
that idea of visibility is equally important. You cannot create trust if people can't see you. Um, but back to our idea of strong safety leadership, uh, inspiring teams to go above and beyond safety because they want to, not because they have to, is probably a very strong indicator of good safety leadership skills. Meaning I'm able to articulate to my people why it matters that we do safety well. See, most people are feel, feel is what the literature would suggest, that safety is a tick and flick exercise or that is something that I feel is being, I'm being made to do for whatever reason people come up with, right? Covering the organization, it's a, it's a requirement, it's just some paperwork that we have to do. And I don't think that as leaders, that's very true. We don't, we're not necessarily a fan of paperwork ourselves, right? We don't really find enjoyment in having people completing <laughs> paperwork. We probably, an organization do care, really care about the safety of our people. We know it's important. And we don't wanna be that organization that has seen someone get injured on our watch. But most often that doesn't translate to the front line. So strong safety leadership is that ability to help people understand why we do safety in the, in the first place. Well, it's about you going home safely. And if people understand that in your organization and are able to articulate that vision, usually strong safety leadership is in place. If we have a strong baseline of trust and people understand why we do safety, that's when we can challenge our teams to think differently about safety and contribute to improving the culture. And at the end of the day, I'd argue that the people on the front line are the people that are going to give you the nuggets of gold that you need to know to and you need to have to improve your processes, environment, person and leadership component of your safety culture. And that can happen without strong safety leadership. Now, we're now going to look at how those safety leadership competencies are applied in practice. So it's great to understand what good looks like, the theory behind it, but it's better, in my opinion, to understand how we apply it to a working environment. See, what we encourage leaders to do is essentially pulling the right lever at the right time, right? It's, well, I'm in this situation now. I know that means I have to, according to age safety leadership competencies, because that's what's going to get me the result I'm after. So we're going to unpack, um, time permitting, four strategies for safety leaders. I like to call them personas. And this is the situational leadership piece. So what personas or what approach do I need to take in different situations? Now, they are not the only personas that leaders should adopt. There's many other ways you can deal with different situations, but we we'll just unpack this as a, as a beginner's framework, not really beginners, but a, a helpful framework. So the leader as a guide, the leader as a coach, the empowerer, or the advocate. So, when do you do what is probably the, the next uh, bit of that conversation. So on that scale, we, we have trust and will, meaning the trust level we have with the individual we interact with and their willingness to do the job well and that willingness that we generated for them to do the job well. On that bottom hand of the scale, we have their tenure in the organization, the time they've been around and their skills, right? And according to those, different approach will be required. So for instance, if someone's fairly green in terms of tenure and skills, we probably don't have very high level of trust established because it's a new, it's likely to be a new relationship. Their willingness may be there, 
but they may not understand how to best use it. In that situation, the leader is probably best positioned to be the guide, meaning I'm here to direct, help understand and support the people to be inspired to do the job well, but also motivated to be. Guide them, give them a clear, a clear direct sense of direction and certainty for what's expected of them so that they feel empowered to do it well. Now, that's great for someone that just joined the organization, but as time goes on, things change, right? And as their levels of skills and tenure improves and the relationship does so, they're probably in a different space where that guidance is not gonna be needed anymore. And we'll have to adopt a person that probably close to a coach, right? We're here to still monitor, give advice, influence people to do things differently through sharing experiences, but also giving them a little bit of, of, um, of room to play. The next one, the empower, um, where we are there to empower people to do things differently applies probably to those people that have been around for a while. You know, that person is probably now an expert at what they do. Um, they've been in the organization for some time and they know who you are. You have a different relationship. This is where I usually say you need to give them uh, the keys to the car, right? You need to let them drive and, and give them permission to play. At the same time, mindful that this is safety. We, we can't let anything go, but it's it's collaborating with them, delegating them some tasks so they can grow in the safety space beyond you, essentially, right? Good leaders should help people <laughs> uh, become their next leaders. The last persona that's quite interesting is the advocate. Now, the advocate is one that can apply to many different situations. Essentially, we could call it the advocate, the influencer, many names could be given to that, um, to that persona. Now, while it may seem like the safe card to play because it applies at all in, in most interaction, it's probably also the most complex to, to be able to play because it requires a lot of understanding of those eight safety leadership competencies. What the advocate does, is influencing up and managing his leaders as well as down by influencing the team and being really the glue between both. And we know that it's really important in the organization. So now that you know a little bit more about those, um, I'd like to invite another poll and maybe give you the opportunity to tell me if we don't have the time to look at all four, what are the, the most important one, the one that you really want to know about of those personas? So is it the guide, the coach, the one that empowers or the advocate? So I can make sure that I cover um, what's gonna be of most value to participants today. Okay, just a few more seconds, Thibault. Thanks, Sarah. All right, I think I'll show that now. Thank you. All right, so quite interesting. Most people want to understand what the job of empowering your people or what empowering your people looks like. We then have the leader as the coach and maybe a, and a lot of people that want to understand what the advocate is. Um, the guide, not so much. So what I suggest is I'm gonna quickly skim over the guide just to give you the, the baseline of what that looks like and we'll jump into the, the coach straight away. 
thanks for for voting now uh we're looking at those four strategies so the leader as a guide just quick overview so you understand the context um you don't have to leverage all of those competencies when you have the approach of the guide and that's quite important to understand you're not going you're not here to challenge people to think differently you have to get here to give them guidance what that looks like is finding the time for them the most precious resource that you have for your people as a leader is your time helping them make those connections and join the dots give them enough rope meaning a little bit of room to fail safely as i like to call it but also hold them into account that's the leader uh, as a guide i'm not going to unpack it as it's not necessarily uh, the most interesting to people today the coach however was generating quite a little bit of interest now when we're coaching we're making the assumption that we've leveraged the other competencies to elevate to elevate people to a certain level with a certain level of trust and a certain level of skill already established what we're here to do is really help people to think differently and give their input into the decision making process crucial there is going to be uh positive reinforcement through recognition to show them when they are on the right way so what we do here is we challenge people to think differently about safety absolutely we need to to expand their their universe when it comes to how they they approach task um suggesting what worked well in the past or source of inspiration and never close the feedback loop use a combination of both tangible and intangible so is a praise verbal uh intangible rewards or tangible rewards if you have a formal leadership process in your organization So how do you do this? You first become the master of questions. Now, I often say questions are really the best tool you can get in your leadership toolkit. And the quality of question you ask is often going to define the quality of outcomes you get from people. We know from neuroscience that closed questions that you can answer by yes or no actually shut down your prefrontal cortex and do not stimulate your executive thinking as opposed to open ended question which are in nature exploratory such as what would it look like if or is there another way we could do this safely according to you what have you seen worked well in the past so becoming a master of effective question is really key in being a coach that also requires seeking to understand before being understood which is quite crucial in that space and that's a good way to start applying those appreciative inquiry skills so if you don't know what appreciative inquiry is it's a type of questioning um and motivational interviewing that relies on a strengths based approach where we invite people to reflect on what's worked well in the past in similar or different situation different organization in order to problem solve on issues that are sticky essentially and that's proven to work really well so reflecting on past experiences that worked well great skill to have as a coach inviting people to do so as well so tell me what have you seen that worked well in the past those type of questions if you've been around them for a while you should probably know what makes them tick and that's a great way to inspire your people if you know those intrinsic motivator that you can leverage use them use them as the fuel for performances 
because people will do things if they see a benefit in doing it for themselves, not for the organization. And that's because people are driven by their personal results. So if you know them, you can leverage that to benefit the organization and its performances. Last but not least, hold your ground. Uh, what that means is a pretty simple idea that will probably change your life. It did change mine. I found, and I don't know if you found that it's true for you, that at some point in my leadership journey, people were coming to me with a lot of problem to solve, right? People came with a litany of problems that they wanted to solve. And my tendency was to listen to them and say, yeah, okay, I know what to do. Here's the answer, go and do it. And people were happy and the organization went well, the performances were met. What that left me with as a leader is a lot of problem to solve. And a lot of people wanting me to solve their problem, which as you would know, an individual himself isn't scalable. Uh, micromanagement isn't scalable. So what I encourage you to do is actually not solve problems for people and have them solve their own problem for themselves. So when people come to you with a problem, that's the time to say, how would you go about it differently? What have you seen well that work well in the past? Tell me how we could solve that challenge. Now, it might be counterintuitive. You might think, well, I've got the answer. Might as well, might as well just give them. The truth is when you do that, you're robbing them from those insights of them coming to a solution for themselves and therefore not needing you the next time they're going to have a problem because they know they can solve it themselves. So the coach is here to collaborate and challenge, but also recognize when people do the right thing. And I'm sure you've worked with one of those. I hope you've worked with one of those leaders before in your life. They're quite transformational and they really help people grow. So we can get them to the next stage of being the empowerer. Now, here, you're closing the feedback loop with what you did originally. You're helping people shape their own vision and their own inspiration for their leadership journey as well. Now, you can help them tailor the safety vision to target specific growth area within the team. They become your advocate, essentially your own little advocate. You need to give them opportunities to take more responsibility. These are the people that will help you get into that strategic space as a, strategic space as a leader instead of staying stuck in a tactical space, which we often end up um, being stuck in as leader. When, you know, it's often... We say, oh, I don't have time to think of the strategy. I'm so caught up in fixing issues when it comes to safety. Those people that have been there for a while, experts in their own field, need a little bit of bandwidth, a little bit of permission to play. You're there to collaborate mostly with them, challenge their thinking, but also help them shape their own vision and legacy. Now, as the empower, uh, you've already become a master of effective recognition which means people should be by now comfortable with their level of skills and know what good looks like and their performances. You just need to make sure you keep recognizing that. I will invite you to foster more deeper collaboration or collaborative processes with those people. Those are the people that you want to invite to give strong input into the decision-making process especially if they're at that stage where they're the experts in their own field. And, you know, if someone's been doing something for 10 years, um, it's very likely that they have very, very valuable input for you that you should consider. 
And my experience is that people that have long tenures that are expert don't necessarily want their decision to be the decision we take. They just want to be able to give input. And that's how you keep them engaged, by seeking their expertise. Now, sometime you're going to have to give them the keys to the car. And what that means is giving them permission to play with what you know they can do well. It will free up some time for you and it will make them feel like they're contributing to the organization meaningfully. So my invitation is invite a lot of collaboration with those type of people. Give them the keys to the car as often as you can. And ask them questions such as, what's your legacy? Where do you want to go with your career? What do you want to leave behind when you leave this organization if you do? And helping them reflect on those things will actually bring them forward in their journey. And I'll argue as a safety leader, that's your job. Last but not least, the advocate, the leader as the advocate. So I won't um, read you tick and flake all the, the eight safety leadership competencies because you need to leverage them all just at different time. Your main role here is almost to be an ambassador and a champion for both your team, whether it's the management team or the team that you lead. And I'll jump straight into the how. So ramping up your emotional intelligence is going to be crucial. Back to that idea of seek to understand before being understood, it is going to be very crucial that you listen actively to what people have to say so you can understand what they care about. And that makes you feel more relatable. You're creating and fostering that relationship of trust. You will need to ramp up your diplomatic skills. Mind, mind you, they're very different depending if you're managing up or if managing down. There's different sets of skills that will be required if you're trying to influence your own leaders. Likewise, a very different set of skill that you'll need to apply to influence your team. Now, you learn them through exposure, but also through questioning. Seeking to understand, again, crucial here. What is also going to be very important is that inspiring competency, probably. How you help people understand what your vision or what the vision of the organization is and how, why they matter. And we invite people to reflect here on their pitch. What we talk about is that idea of the elevator pitch, that if you had to tell people in 30 seconds what your vision looked like, well, what would that sound like, right? And while it might be a bit silly of an exercise to say, well, I'm not here to sell something, I'm here to do safety, um, it's actually really important to reflect on because in the busy world that we are in today, 30 seconds is sometimes all you've got and you want to make sure you utilize them as the best you could use them, right? Whether it's with your leader or with your team. The last and nevertheless very important part of this advocate persona is your ability to become the poster child for psychological safety. Now, psychological safety is something that's been thrown around a lot lately. Uh, I'll just explain it for, for the sake of reminding everyone of what it is, but it's people's ability to come to work being their own self, right? I often hear people tell me things like, um, there's the work, there's the me at work and there's the me at home. Um, if the me at home shows up at work quite often, that would suggest there is strong level of psychological safety in the organization. What you want is people to feel 
that they can approach, trust you, and that their secret or their, their worries are safe with you, and that you're not going to judge, judge them for their reaction. That means being comfortable with differences, with sometimes an helpful attitude, but also reminding them that they shouldn't exist, and, and also reinforcing positive ones. So create that environment of trust. Be that trusted advisor to your leader who knows he can come to you and get the real facts, not what he wants to hear, but also your people who will know they can trust you to say what's not working without being in fear of repercussion or, or persecution in the organization. If you can achieve that, you can be a good advocate and you're going to be a good influencer in your organization. I always remember uh, the example of one leader that I've encountered in my life in, in the in, uh, on a coal terminal uh, in North Queensland. And he was so influential to, to create the link between leadership and the frontline, even with labor hiring contractors, that this organization just ticked along nicely with, and, and got so much result. They, they, wouldn't, they didn't hurt people because they all sing along from the same song sheet all of the time. And that frontline leader was just so influential. He was leveraging those universal, uh, the concept that we, you may have heard of, that we use um, of PB5, personal big five, the, the most important things to you that uh, he was inviting people to reflect on. So why, why are you doing things safely today? Because you want to go home to, to your wife or because you want to go fishing this weekend. And that's just how they talk about safety. And that's how he was able to influence everyone in the organization. So just a, a good example of what that could look like in, in real life. So next steps. The question that you probably have as well, that's all great to understand. So how do I get my leaders to, to, to be strong safety leaders? Well, there's a few recommendations we make to organization. Um, help your leader understand the organizational context, right? You need to equip your leaders with the necessary knowledge to understand what you're trying to achieve as an organization. So if you're an executive or senior leader and you've got a clear understanding of what your goal is for your organization, are you confident that your people actually understand what you're trying to achieve? If not, especially in the context of safety, you want to help them understand that. The other side to equipping leader, your leaders is understanding where they're at, right? So assessing them against some of those safety leadership competencies to understand what their level is, because just like your situational leadership piece, you will require different approach depending on where your leaders are at. And you need to meet people where they're at in order to get most impact. So understanding where people are sitting on that model will guide your next steps. So I'm a big advocate of getting the data. What's the data telling us is a question I ask often. That's because it's going to give you probably a good direction for what you should try to achieve. Um, targeted training to influence positive team safety attitudes and behaviors. Now, that's another one that's really important. Uh, often what I see in organization, and I don't know if that's your experience, I see that people that become especially frontline leaders uh, in heavy industries mostly, come up through the ranks. That means usually they were the best operator. And because they were the best operator, we made them a leader. And the challenge is sometimes they didn't even want to be a leader or they don't have the skills to be a leader. They know how to be a great operator, but they're not equipped with the skill to lead people. And when people come to me with that 
prob that challenge, I, I said to them, well, what is your organization doing to equip those leaders with those leadership skills that you so directly need? So reflecting on what you've been doing to help those people become better leader is probably a good place to start as well. If that's not happening in your organization, probably an opportunity to reflect on. And the last recommendation is usually that application infield through coaching. We know that coaching through numerous literature uh, and reviews and white papers, we know that coaching actually really increased the level of training transfer and increased performances in, in organizations. It's a very powerful tool to get your people to change their attitudes and behavior. And it's even more important when your leader do it. Uh, coaching is really something that's, that can be quite confronting for a lot of people, but I would strongly encourage you to consider that because you get really good result from, from being coached yourself or coaching people in your organization. Now that we've given you a lot of information today, a lot of data, it's probably uh, an opportunity to give you um, the opportunity to ask your questions. So over to you. If you have any questions, if there are things that you want to understand or that are um, that are not clear or that you want to better understand, please um, send your questions through the Q&A function or of the of Zoom, and as they come through, I'll start to to address them. I'm just going to give you a, another, while you send your question, probably a, a few, few pointers. Um, if you are interested to know more at how you can assess your people, uh, we offer some safety leadership development tools. If that's something you want to get an understanding of, whether it's coaching or, or skill-based training program, and you want to explore that further with us, um, again, uh, Sarah is kind enough to put the, the poll up. Um, would you like more information? Yes or no? Okay, yep, I'm just waiting for some questions as well. I'll run that poll for a little bit longer. Um, that was very, very informative. Thank you, Thibault. Really cool. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and a reminder that an email will come out later today with um, a copy of the recording and a podcast. And our podcasts are also on Spotify now as well as Apple. So um, I'm also going to share uh, the webinar for next week in the chat because it's um, quite um, relevant to the content today. So the, the topic for next week is the value of self-coaching. I'll put that in the chat. And there are a couple of questions now. Yep. Um, Tim says, what's the best way of dealing with those leaders who believe they get it, but they really don't? Um, uh, it's a very good question, Tim. Um, look, the first thing I'll say is as leaders, the only way we can influence others truly is by starting to change ourselves. Um, and that's not a politician response. I'll still tell you, uh, Tim, how you can influence others. But yeah, looking at how we can, how our behaviors will incite a different response is probably what I direct people towards in the first place. What I'm trying to say is what I found to be effective is a real questioning approach where we get people to connect the dots and expose them to new knowledge, those people. Because people usually won't change if they're told to. I don't know about you, but when people tell me to do something differently, it doesn't really work. When I found information for myself though, I really start to question my thinking. So I think your job, if you want to influence people, Tim, would be as a leader to, to open their mind to new contexts, whatever that looks like, so they can start to have 
information that may be conflicting with their belief and help them grow. I hope that was helpful, Tim. Uh, we also have a question from Claire Frost. Uh, how can we keep safety leadership front of mind, even in a relatively low risk setting, such as an office? That's also a very good question, Claire. And what I probably will do is, is challenge the, the frame or the, the attitude that people have uh, in an organization that offices aren't high risk um, for a few reasons. The biggest risk or safety risk, if you look at um, safe work data in organization is actually uh, mental health or well-being issues or lower uh, and the second to that is lower back uh, and uh, lift and manual handling injuries which are very common to offices so offices are probably a high-risk environment to some extent so first is probably creating that awareness that your safety isn't only physical it's also psychological but it's probably a lot of education and a lot of attention density, meaning we know that people will only ever focus on something um, from a brain perspective if it's reminded to them quite often. So short, sharp reminders, visual or verbal or in many different mediums are probably a good way to start raising awareness in offices, as well as probably exposing them to the fact that, hey, your safety is also how you feel and your psychology. Because um, if you break an arm or if you have a mental breakdown, you still can't do the work. Um, I'll, mm -hmm. while the question go through, what I'll do is I'll also offer um, ex expression of interest for what we other uh, what we offer as well as an organization. And Sarah, you were going to say something. Do you want me to read these questions out? Oh, that that would be great if you could. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I've launched um, that uh, poll, so that's up there too. So Richard says, what tools? do you use to assess competencies and is this self-assessment or peer assessment or both? All right. Very good question. Um, twofold. A lot of, so you can do both self-assessment or 360s. I, I'd probably change a little bit my mind on, on the way you assess self-competencies, uh, you, you assess your competencies. What I now recommend mostly is to do self-assessment for frontline leader or managers, maybe maybe 360s for executives. The reason why is because 360s is actually really cumbersome exercise, which require a lot of people to give input. And after you filled up a few, you're probably gonna just go about it tick and flick because it takes a lot of time, especially if a lot of people in the organization are doing it. The other reason why I recommend self-reflective tool as opposed to probably uh, 360, is because people are a lot more willing to change something they've acknowledged for themselves to be a shortcoming. And there's a lot of things you can do with self-reflections to challenge individuals' results. So if someone rates themselves as an expert in everything, well, you expose them, aggregate data to say, well, look, how realistic is it that you're an expert at everything? Um, and then you'll have a coaching approach to that. So the, the tool we use is mostly self-report. That's what I recommend because I think that's where we've seen better results in organization. Thanks for that question. I, I hope I answered um, the way you want it. Yeah, we have got quite a few actually, okay. load, loads of questions and we've got <laughs> three minutes left. So we'll just, we'll just do what we can. And of course, the contact details for um, uh, Thibault um, will be in the email. Ethan says, does advocacy 
leadership cover all the other styles of leadership? It's a, it's a good and tough question at the same time. So if, Ellen, my understanding when you, you ask is, is the advocate also a guide, a, a coach and empower? Uh, the answer to that is, is no, it's a different persona, but that means you're still able to transition between those personas, right? So situational leadership is understanding, oh, all right. So um, Bob here says this, that signals to me that I need to approach a coaching approach. Right, I need to, to take this with a bit of a coaching lens on. But Steve here says that, oh, I need to be the advocate because all he wants is to be heard so I can relay information up the line. So the advocate isn't all encompassing. It's just a different persona, sorry, that applies to a lot of situations. I hope that was helpful. Uh, Ellen, thank you for your question. Stacey asks, how long are the timeframes for seeing the positive change in your experience to aid with planning? Sorry, she, if she's missed this, if you've already said that. No, I haven't. Stacey, it's a very good question. So it depends if we're talking about individual change or cultural change in organization. Um, cultural change takes a little bit of time. If you want to turn around an organizational culture or safety culture, um, it usually takes three years on average. Um, that's probably a good, you, know, you want to start measuring your data at one point and three years after. That's where you usually start to see a bit of result and progression through maturity. Uh, at an individual level, it really depends on the impact uh, that you have on them. And it can be quite fast. While they still probably will need some months to, to practice, uh, they will probably, they could, you could get some pretty uh, strong inroads, make some strong inroads with uh, data that's presented to them. I'm mindful, Sarah, that we're, we're going to the end of time. Is there any other questions that you'd like to, to cover on? Well, yeah, loads, but we're only going to do one. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so this one, how do you challenge your employer who believes you're wasting people's time with your safety procedures? Um, so it's, it's, not a, it's a hard question and an easy one. Um, it's hard in the sense that I don't understand the contextual uh, information that goes around that particular individual or why they're challenging you with your safety stuff. Um, the other one is, is quite simply that you have an, a duty as an organization to help people go home safe. And while that may not be your opinion, it certainly is the regulator's opinion. Uh, so I would help, help them understand what their duty are as a leader to, to their people, but also the consequences of, of not caring. I think that's quite... Um, challenging on the onset but it should be a conversation that happens in the organization if your leader doesn't care about safety all right well i think that's all we have time for today so um the, there's some feedback coming through the chat that this was a really really informative session <clears throat> and um yeah really good so um i'll just repeat we'll send out the um podcasts and videos later today and links to um tebow at centers so thank you very much tebow um thank you sarah See you again soon. Thank you, everyone. See Bye. you again. Bye. Bye.